0: Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we pray for your Holy Spirit today to speak to us. Renew in our hearts the understanding and the knowledge that enables us to not be shallow when it comes to Christmas, but to really understand that our hearts can truly, can truly be in the right place for this experience. In Jesus' name, amen. So what I want to do today is I just want to walk you through some texts. So today's going to be a little more like a, a little Bible study. So I want you to just grab the Bible that's in front of you. I got the same one that's in front of you in my hand here. I just want you to take it out because we're going to read some texts today and we're going to put this Christmas story together as it unfolds through Scripture. And in order to do that, the first place we're going to start is the book of Genesis. You might have thought for the Christmas story we would start in the Gospels, but really the Gospels are the conclusion or at least the the middle point of the story that actually has a start somewhere else. And to really understand and appreciate what the birth of Jesus means, you've got to understand that larger context. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said... You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now just pause there for a second. For us, die is not a hypothetical concept. We know exactly what that term means. But Adam and Eve did not know what that really meant. God had told them, and maybe He had tried to explain it to them, but they had never experienced death. Just imagine that for a minute. Think about what a dominant role in our lives the reality of death plays, and realize they didn't even know what it was. Verse 4 But the servant said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So you know about half-truths, right? When somebody makes a statement and, and it's not entirely wrong, but the, the core of it is wrong, this is a half-truth. Because the result of disobedience to God was, in fact, going to be that in a certain way, Adam and Eve were going to become like God by knowing good and evil. Now, think about this again. At no point in our lives have we ever not known about evil, right? We know about it. We experience it. It's all around us. But we didn't have to know it. We didn't have to know the kinds of terrible things we know about because they didn't have to happen. Good does not need evil. Think about that for a minute. Good does not need evil in order to exist. Good does just fine by itself. Kind people doing prosperous things, helping one another. Do you need somebody to come into that scenario and be evil? No, good just rolls on. But evil is the parasite that can't live without good because evil has to prey on something. And God didn't want evil in the game. But he knew when he created us the way he created us, we were capable of it. And the serpent said, oh, evil, you want to know about this? Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, you ever done something to make yourself wise that in the end you regretted doing and you wish you never had gotten that knowledge in the first place? Yeah, I got a list of those things. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, Ah, oh, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. You ever notice how fast we turned on each other? Come on, Adam, just own it, man. That's so disappointing. It, 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 it was her and it's really your fault. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not a good look there. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And ladies, I'm sorry, you, you didn't get it much better. The woman said, it was the serpent. He deceived me. That's not what confession looks like if you're wondering if you're wondering what confession looks like it's it's owning it yeah i did it it was not a good start the serpent deceived me and i ate the lord god said to the serpent because you have done this cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life now catch this verse 15 I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's a technical term that theologians apply to this passage. They call it the proto-euangelion. Now the word euangelion uh, is good news. And the term proto means the first good news. And it is understood that in this verse, Genesis 3, verse 15, the first hint of the redemption that God is going to bring comes immediately after the fall of Adam and Eve. He makes a promise That there will be enmity between the offspring of the woman and the serpent, representative of the devil, that we as humans will not be completely linked to our discussion, completely linked to the devil, to our destruction, but that God will allow there to be enmity there until the day he puts an end to it. And on that day, it is described as he will crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent will strike his heel. The serpent will do damage. Now, it's impossible from that to understand the fullness of the story. And this is an important reality about Scripture and about prophecy. Don't try to figure it out before the time because you'll come up with crazy stuff. Know the prophecy in your mind, and when it takes place, you'll understand. So this is all about Jesus dying on the cross and crushing Satan in the process. This is what he's saying. Now, he'll go on there, verses 16 and 17, and and there are some things that are called the curses, Verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. And then he goes on to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, you shall not eat of, Cursed is the ground because of you, and in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. These are referred to as the curses. We'll come back to this idea in a little bit. But let's go down to uh, verse 22. Genesis 3. Verse 22. I turned too many pages here. Here we go. There it is. All right, 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, In knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So now that we had become associated with evil, God knew it was not in our best interest that we continue to have access to this tree of life and that our lives go on and on and we continue to just do terrible things. But he did not want to leave us in that state forever. So I want you to go with me to Romans chapter three. So we're gonna go all the way over now into the New Testament, Romans chapter three. You see, Genesis 3 gives us the statement of the problem. Humans disobeyed God. Evil came into the world. We began to experience it and know it and act on it. And God knew that it was not best for us to be in this state. Romans chapter 3 verse 9. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, now I'm going to read you a bunch of quotes. This is in kind of an interesting section. Paul here is quoting from the Old Testament, but he's all over the place with these quotes. He's quoting from the Psalms, he's quoting from Ecclesiastes, he's quoting from Isaiah. He uses a lot of different places here. And you can go through it in a Bible that's got a good margin on it and go back and find all the spots. But here's what he says. As it is written, verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. That's an Old Testament claim. That's not a Paul claim. That's Old Testament. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless, No one does good, not even one. So as the story developed, you have the Genesis 3 fall, and as the story develops, these are the words of the prophets describing the reality of humanity. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the manifestation of the reality of the knowledge of evil within humans, and it wasn't good for us. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And we could be getting discouraged at this point, but verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ For all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There's only one cure. And it was hinted at in Genesis 3.15 that someone descended of the woman would come and through that one that came, the head of the serpent would be crushed. And now we get down here to Romans and we see, yes, humanity, it's been, it's been a train wreck. It's been a disaster. But a righteousness has been given us apart from law, apart from everything we couldn't get right by faith in Jesus Christ. Go to Revelation. Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. This is imagery again, but it's very powerful imagery. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains, and the agony of giving birth. Here we go. Reference all the way back to Genesis 3. All the way back to the curses. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns on its heads, and seven And on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So the woman here represents the people of God going through the travail, going through the reality of life in a fallen world. But the woman is about to give birth to a child, and this child is the promise. From Genesis 3.15, the one who will come to crush the serpent. But the serpent doesn't believe, and the serpent is there, and he's ready to destroy the child, not realizing that in the process, he will destroy himself. Verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. It's an amazing image, isn't it? The woman gives birth to the child. The child will rule the nations. He accomplishes his purpose and he's caught up to God. Now the rest of Revelation will tell the story of how he will return the conquering king. But we're focused in today on the reality of when this woman who represents the people of God brings forth the Redeemer. And we go to Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. I've read this text to you before. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. The promise is fulfilled. It's hinted at back in Genesis. The Old Testament tells the story of this Messiah who will come. Revelation speaks of this moment where the serpent wants to devour the one who comes before he can do his work. But God's appointed purpose goes forward. It knows neither haste nor delay when the fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son. Now, what is accomplished in it? Well, it's all tied back to the curses. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 1 Corinthians chapter fifteen, beginning in verse one. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to scripture. This is the most important message, and I hope you're hearing it today. I give it to you as of first importance that Christ the Savior was born. He died for your sins. On the third day, he rose again. Now, what are the implications? Verse 20, jump down to verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. How did death come by a man? It came back in the garden. In Genesis 3, when Adam took fruit and ate it, and death came to us all. So as through a man death came, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus came to undo the curse. The curse came upon us that day in the garden when Adam and Eve took the fruit and disobeyed from God. The curses flowed from that reality of disobedience and that knowledge of evil. But Jesus came into the world full of evil, and lived for us, died the death that was rightly ours, and rose again, that by putting our faith in him, we might have eternal life. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the story. And it starts when Jesus was born. We're going to sing at the end here, towards the end, the the Christmas song, Joy to the World. But there's there's a, a line in there, and I don't know if you've noted this ever or connected it in one of the verses. It goes like this, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. What in the world, thorns infest the ground? If you go back to Genesis 3, you see that was one of the curses. By the sweat of your brow you will bring forth food from the ground and thorns will grow from the ground. Here's this Christmas hymn saying, no more will the thorns infest the ground. It says he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Jesus was born to undo the curse that came on us when we gained the knowledge of evil that day all those years ago. I'm going to invite the band to come back because we're going to sing here a few songs in just a moment. But as they do, I want to read just a couple more passages. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, the beginning in verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. How many of you each Christmas watch Charlie Brown Christmas? You ever watch that one? That's a crazy one. You know how old that is? That thing came out in December of 1965. That's the year I was born. That's how old that is. But there's something about good news that never gets old. And there's something powerful in that ridiculous little cartoon that I love with all my heart when Charlie Brown can't figure out what Christmas is about. And Linus says, I'll tell you what Christmas is about, Charlie Brown. And he walks out onto the stage, and he says, lights, please. And the spotlight comes on him, and he says, there were shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And then he walks off. And he says, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Isaiah 9. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. on the throne of David and over his kingdom, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is what Christmas is about. The one born to be the deliverer. So I pray that this year, as you, as you participate in all of the things, that in your heart, you will know the peace that comes to those who put their faith in the one born in Bethlehem.